Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us. If you'd like to listen back to any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. And we do love getting your reviews. It really does mean a lot to us to get feedback from the listeners. Well, this week, we don't have any guests in studio or with us over Zoom, as we have been since the start of the lockdown, but it's just myself and John, and we're going to be discussing an interesting topic. It's Ireland and the Middle East and the British Empire, and how those three play in towards each other in the wake of the First World War. And we should say from the off, John, that neither of us is really a Middle East expert, but it's something that we've been looking into, and it's quite interesting. Yeah, so we're, we're not experts on the Middle East, as you say, we're not specialists, but we've been reading up about it and we think it's kind of worthy of comment and maybe our discussion can provoke other discussions as well. You know, other people can can follow up on, on the kind of things we're talking about. Well, that's the thing. As we've been researching and looking into it, we've come across a lot of very interesting little facts there that do play into the situation in Ireland and the War of Independence and do play in, I think, as well in how... Britain deals with the Irish situation in the wake of the First World War coming up to the Anglo-Irish Treaty? Yeah, very much so. And I mean, I recently wrote an article about the sack of Balbriggan and the spate of kind of British reprisals in Ireland in 1920 during the Irish War of Independence. And one thing I was struck by was a parallel with Iraq or Mesopotamia, as it was known at the time, that Charles Townsend, who was a historian of both places, made in his own book, When God Made Hell, which is about the British occupation of Mesopotamia. Basically, I was struck by, on the one hand, similarities in the situation in 1920, but on the other hand, how much more brutal, really, British methods were in a faraway place like Iraq than they were in Ireland. Well, I think as most people know, in the lead up to the First World War, the British have a huge empire that stretches all across the world. But one of the things that does help them to expand far more in the Middle East is the First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Perhaps you could go into that, John. Yeah, well, one reason as well that I want to talk about the Middle East is that we talk about Ireland as a colony of Britain, which is only in some respects true. Like we can argue all day about that, but in theory, Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Irish people are citizens of the United Kingdom. Now, that's not true in the Middle East, but in the Middle East is most of it not technically part of the British Empire either. It's usually mandates which are given to Britain, in theory, by the League of Nations after the First World War. Now, 
the outlier here is Egypt. Egypt is not again formally part of the British Empire, but was controlled by Britain since the 1880s. And what happened there was originally the British and French moved in to redeem debts, which the government of Egypt at the time was threatening to renounce over the building of the Suez Canal. And Britain ended up effectively ruling Egypt. They had a governor general and they had an army of occupation effectively from 1882. But you're right, most of the British presence in the Middle East was mandates after the First World War. Now, what happened there was effectively Britain took most of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, if you like, in kind of vulgar shorthand, that had existed in the Middle East. They took what's now Palestine. It's now Israel and Palestine, Palestine then, and that was taken as a British mandate. So the British were going to look after it until they were ready for independence was the idea. When the British moved in, they made, of course, the Balfour Declaration, which meant that it was going to be a homeland for Jews as well as for the Arab population. They gave most of Syria and what's now Lebanon to the French under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was an agreement, a secret agreement, which was publicized by the Bolsheviks when they inherited the Russian archive in 1917. But Syria and Lebanon was given to the French. It was originally envisaged that they would occupy part of Turkey as well, but they were eventually kind of thrown out of Turkey by the nationalist regime there under Kemal Ataturk. The British got what was then Mesopotamia. They conquered that in the First World War. It was three provinces, really, of the Ottoman Empire, the province of Mosul in the north, the province of Baghdad and the province of Basra. But the British took them together in a new country called Iraq. They created a new monarchy in what they called Transjordan. Uh, Transjordan and Iraq were kind of consolation prizes for the Hashemite family, who had been the main instigators of the Arab revolt against the Turks, British allies, because they lost Saudi Arabia to a rival family, really. But at the end of the First World War, you have Britain in occupation of, of a wide stretch of kind of the Middle East from Egypt to Palestine to Iraq. And also there was a strong British presence in Persia, what's now Iran, which again, like Egypt, was not formal. It wasn't a mandate or a colony, but because of oil, which was discovered in Persia in 1908, there was a very strong British presence, including a British garrison in Iran. So you can effectively say that Britain controlled most of the Middle East directly or indirectly. And there's also presence in some of the Gulf states in places like Aden, which is now Yemen, that goes back even further in the 19th century, the idea there being to protect the sea passage. But the upshot is that after the First World War, Britain is the dominant power in the Middle East. They've displaced the Ottoman Turks and they've given a few kind of consolation prizes to the French. They're really governing directly or indirectly most of the Middle East. Well, that's the thing. If we can go maybe more into this idea of mandates and in the wake of the First World War, as he said there, you have President Wilson's 14 points. And this is one of the the justifications for the war, that it's a, a democratic war and you're going to get an end to imperialism and self-determination for subject nations. And this is used in a big way in the Middle East. And we all think of Lawrence of Arabia and that this old dying empire, the Ottomans, the sick man of Europe, all these nationalities contained within it are going to have self-determination and have their own countries. And that's not quite the way it worked out, was it? No. Well, the thing to remember about this is as well, in the, in the end of the First World War, Wilson yeah, famously has the 14 points in self-determination. But remember that you know the French and the British were not keen on this principle at all, by any means. They might have gone along with it in Central Europe to a degree in the, in the sense that they were going to break up the old Habsburg Empire. They certainly weren't going to apply it to any one of their empires. And they didn't intend to apply it to the territory they took over in the Middle East either. So as I indicated... The French and the British effectively carved up the Middle East. But you're right in the sense that they gave this a fig leaf of self-determination by this concept of mandates as opposed to colonies. 
So as you're saying, in theory, they're going to give self-determination to the peoples of the Middle East. Now they actually divided them up, not on ethnic or religious or any other, you know, uh, guidelines at all, except for, you know, territories that they wanted to split up units they wanted to, to have. But the idea of a mandate was that Britain and France weren't occupiers, they were simply supervising these countries while they matured, and this was the theory of the day, in, into kind of civilized nations and they'd be ready to govern themselves. Now, in lots of ways, that was a big leap for much more cynical kind of ambition for seizing kind of strategic places like Palestine had few resources, but it was very strategic in its location. Iraq, just at the very end of the First World War, was discovered had massive oil fields up in Mosul, in the north of what's now the north of Iraq. And then similarly, the French courts in Lebanon, what's now Lebanon and Syria, were very strategic. So the mandates were figly free from much more self-interested policy. Yes. And as you said there, when you were talking about Egypt, it's incredible the way the imperial powers see an opportunity, particularly with things like debt and reparations and jump in like something that becomes a long-running sore for a century between Britain and Egypt is the Suez Canal. And when Egypt were in economic dire straits, they ended up selling their shares. It was uh, an Egyptian-French co-production building the Suez Canal. They sell their shares to the British. As a very short amount of time before British and French controllers are actually sitting in the Egyptian cabinet calling yeah. the shots. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, really, because, you know, Egypt is probably almost second to India in a sense, like of, a, if you like, an oriental possession of, of Britain. But it was never formally a British colony at all. You know, it was it was formally just uh, the British were supervising the, the repayment of their debt. It, it's a funny one. But what what kind of prompted direct British intervention there was back in 1882. There was um, a kind of nationalist uh, Egyptian general who wanted to renounce this debt and the British sent in the troops uh, and which is why they got the jump on the French and then they defeated them in uh, the Battle of Tel El Kabir uh, which is still the name of a football club in, in Dublin in Sinenti, uh, based on so yeah based in, in Dalkey which is a product of Irish soldiers who came back from that campaign uh, TEK United is the name of the, the Dublin football team uh, I always yeah. wondered what that stood for yeah crazy but I mean it just it goes to show Ireland's point uh, Ireland's uh, part of the British Empire too but yeah like uh, informally Britain was simply supervising the repayment of debt. But in fact, like there was a governor general, there was a garrison. The British basically supervised the Egyptian war with Sudan, you know, in the 1880s and 90s as well. And, well they, let's be honest, they, they fought it, they directed it. So I guess this brings us to the, the after the post-First World War period. Egypt was a major base for British forces in the First World War. Uh, and, you know, British control of Egypt is very obvious. Like the fig leaf that there's an Egyptian king is in control was really exposed in the First World War because the British moved troops in and out without any reference. But there was a nationalist uprising in Egypt in 1919, led by a party called the Waft. Now, uh, apologies for the pronunciation to any, any Arabic-speaking viewers, but the, it's spelled W-A-F-T-D in English, an Egyptian nationalist party. And the British had to put in considerable amount of troops, uh, and over a thousand people were killed in 1919 in Egypt. And there was also general strike and, and so on. Uh, but there was over a thousand people killed in the British putting down of this revolt in Egypt in 1919. Milner, who was the colonial secretary, we're going to come back to this, I think, in, in terms of British policy. They're, they're very aware that it's better to have a light touch, to appear not to be in control, even when you are in the wake of this uprising. Milner said British interests are best served by authority in the narrowest limits possible. And they said Egypt was to be a constitutional monarchy. But this was actually rejected in the short term by Lord George and Churchill, who were the heads of the post-war government in Britain. But there's an attempt, even as early as 1919 in Egypt, for the British to kind of recalibrate their control 
over the place while not giving it up. Well, it's funny, even going back a bit further there in 1899, you have the Anglo-Egyptian condominium agreement as that they're going to be jointly rule Sudan. But for all the good it meant of the Egyptian end, it was really British control of Sudan. Oh, with, 100%. I mean, you can see that, for example, like in the, the Pashida incident, which it took place after the conquest of Sudan, when the British forces met the French forces in, in Central Africa at the end of Sudan, or today is South Sudan. There was no reference back to Cairo to what the Egyptians thought, you know, so it, it goes to show you. But after this nationalist uprising in 1919, in 1922, the British did move further towards granting independence to Egypt, but they retained the garrison and they retained four reserved points. Now, this we're going to come back to these kind of points because we see this all over the place. But the four reserved points were security of imperial communications, defense against external aggression, protection of the foreign community and minorities and Sudan, which was to be left under British discretion. And Curzon, who's the colonial secretary, who is a guy, again, we'll keep going back to, said, I take it we all have in view that Egypt should remain inside rather than outside the imperial system. If the best way to do this is to drop the word protectorate and conclude a treaty of alliance with her, why not do it? So, Cahill, you also have a good quote from Curzon to this effect, I believe. Yeah, Curzon had another quote there saying, uh, British influence in the Middle East should be as self-effacing as possible and discreetly veiled by the facade of self-determination. Yeah, sort of sums it up a lot, really, doesn't it? It really does. And the British retained advisors in the ministries of the Judiciary, Finance, Interior, and the Inspector General of the Army. Uh, you know all the all the things that really hold power in a, in a government. Uh, and while the WAFT uh, we mentioned before, the Nationalist Party was the most powerful party, I believe authority was still held by the the king. Who the king's name was Fuad, who was a, basically a pro-British uh, pope, I think. It was advised. Uh, I have this in inverted commas by a high commissioner. Well, that's the thing, because like in 1914, with the outbreak of the First World War, the previous ruler of Egypt, and I'm going to mispronounce this, but Khadiv Abbas, Egypt was technically a province of the Ottoman Empire. That's and he, when, when the Ottoman Empire went to war, he said we're part of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, he was very, very quickly replaced with Hussein Kemal. And Egypt declares independence and then is fighting alongside Britain or against Ottoman rule. So really, there wasn't much going on in Egypt that Britain disagreed with. And if something happened that they disagreed with, it was stamped out pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and I mean, just to move forward a little bit in time, in, in 1936, this was updated a bit again. And there was another Anglo-Egyptian treaty signed in which the British and the RAF, which became more important garrison near the Suez Canal, was retained. And Egypt also had to provide ports and airports in an emergency. But British forces withdrew from the streets of Cairo and Alexandria in, in 1936. Now, again, in the Second World War, this counted for very little because Egypt was once again the base of, of British military operations in, in North Africa and the Middle East. So it really wasn't until well after the Second World War, and especially the year of Nasser and the, the Suez Crisis of 1956, that, that Egypt really kind of asserted independence from Britain. Well, that's the thing that... As we're discussing this at the moment, people can see the similarities here between the Anglo-Irish Treaty and what's going on there. That Obviously, a lot of discussion we have when we're discussing the Anglo-Irish Treaty is about things to do with sovereignty and the crown and oaths. But really, when it came down to it, an awful lot of it also revolves around military access, things like the ports, and not so much an issue, but things like airfields. Uh, well, airfields were a major issue. Like they didn't just didn't appreciate it in 1922 so much, I think. Yeah. And also the economic issues, particularly in the Middle East, with the natural resources that are available there. 
But as long as Britain had access to the oil and the gas and they could move their troops and their air force through these lands and station them in strategic points, did they really care if it was run by a king or if it was a colony directly of the British Empire? Well, they tended to have this very pragmatic attitude. And, and I want to come back to your comparison with the Anglo-Irish Treaty in a little while, if I may. But let's move on to Iraq, because we see a lot of the same kind of dynamics in Iraq as well. Now, we mentioned Iraq was a country that was created by, really by Britain from three provinces of the Ottoman Empire that were put together after the First World War. Initially, actually, under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, it was envisaged that the French would have the, what's now the north of Iraq, the province of Mosul. But then oil was discovered there, and the British decided they wanted it for themselves. It probably prefigured, you know, a lot of the problems that Iraq still has in the sense that, you know, there's rival ethnic and sectarian groups which were kind of lumped all together in this new country, Iraq. You know, the, the Shia Arab dominated south were based around the province of Basra, uh, Baghdad. At the time now, the sectarian geography has changed very much. Like at the time, Baghdad was uh, very largely a Jewish city, believe it or not. And um, the province of Mosul had a very large Christian community, which is sadly much diminished today, both of those communities. The north of Iraq, the province of Mosul, is very largely Kurdish, also partly Yazidi, which you mentioned to me before, Cahal, referred to at the time as devil worshippers. Yeah, it's interesting. Even in recent books about the British Empire, they're still referred to as like, you know, worshippers of the devil in terms of talking how diverse Iraq was and how strange it was to lump them together into one country that yeah, people well, who, who had probably had very little knowledge of the Middle East are redrawing boundaries and creating countries out of thin air. Yeah, what's, what's kind of surprising when you, when you read about it is the, the outsized influence of a few individuals like uh, Gertrude Bell, who was a woman who was a special advisor, and one of the architects of the British kind of settlement in the Middle East, T.E. Lawrence, the famous Lawrence of Arabia, uh, again, an Arabist and a man whose advice would have been you know, very, uh, very influential. Uh, but I think what you really have to look for is, is British imperial interests, because they're, they're not so much like, you know, nowadays there's a tendency to look back on colonialism and imperialism and say, look at it as an almost eccentric project, which it wasn't at all. It was based on very concrete interests. So the British had a number of them in Mesopotamia or Iraq. One of them was in Basra in the south, it was an RAF base for the defense of the Iranian or the Persian oil fields. So at the time, Persia or today Iran was the major center for oil. And oil is increasingly important for industry, but also for worship. Basra was going to be an aerial base for defense of that. Baghdad is just kind of the bit in the middle. But the province of Mosul, as I said, was where oil was discovered just in the wake of the First World War. So the, the British wanted to hang on to it. Again, it was not a colony. It was a mandate. So technically, the British were just supervising them on their way to independence. Again, the, the quotes are, are, are useful. And this is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill said, for now, it's going to be a British garrison. But in the future... I look forward eventually to the country being in the condition of an independent native state, friendly to Great Britain, favourable to her commercial interests, and causing hardly any burden on the exchequer. Mm. And again, it, show, it show, does show you how the, the British went and uh, viewed these things. And another thing to consider here is the kingdom of Iraq that the British created was, as I said before, a consolation prize for the Hashemite family. Uh, and let me just explain that a little bit. So the Hashemite family were... Uh, like a noble family from what's now Saudi Arabia. And they were the main instigators of the Arab revolt against the, the Turks, the Ottomans, in the First World War, led, you know, aided by the famous Lawrence of Arabia. And I'm sure we've all seen the film. But the Hashemites wanted a number of things which they didn't get. They wanted a new Arab kingdom to be based in Damascus, in today's Syria. And instead, this was given to the French. So they were losers there. And um, their own base was in, in what's today Saudi Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula. 
and they lost out to an internal battle there with the Saud family, whose ancestors still rule Saudi Arabia. And they lost out on, on Palestine because the British wanted to keep that for strategic reasons as well. Um, so Jerusalem, which obviously has great prestige as, as a holy city, but and then they lost out on Mecca and Medina to the Saudis too. The consolation prize was two new kingdoms, Transjordan, which today is Jordan, and this new kingdom of Iraq, and a Hashemite king was, was stuck in there. They wanted to be king of the great Arab kingdom. They got Mesopotamia instead. Mm. And bear in mind the geography here, that Saudi Arabia, or where they're from, or what's today Saudi Arabia, is really nowhere near, you know, Mosul. Uh, culturally different, geographically distant. But the British installed him as king anyway. But we're going to be talking a lot about comparisons with Ireland and a direct kind of chronological comparison is in 1920 we talked about there was an uprising in Egypt in 1919 there was an armed uprising in Iraq against the British presence predominantly in the Shia south of the country actually in 1920 which it took several tens of thousands of British and Indian soldiers to put down over 900 British soldiers were killed in 1920 there and far more Iraqis it was mostly put down by the use of aerial bombardment which was increasingly used in that region one direct comparison with Ireland is that the Irish War of Independence and the Iraqi uprising, or what's known in, in Iraq as the, the revolution, I believe, were going on at the exact same time. And this was one reason why the British government couldn't commit regular army troops to Ireland, because they were just needed elsewhere. They were needed in, in Egypt in 1919, and they were needed in Iraq in 1920. There was also a war on the go in Afghanistan and the northwest frontier of India at the time. So this is something to bear in mind as well when we, we talk about what was happening in Ireland in terms of the raising of the black and tans and the auxiliaries and, and the Ulster specials, actually the auxiliary police formations, paramilitary police. Part of the reason was not just because they wanted it to be a police action, but also because the troops weren't available. They were they were being deployed in Iraq and, and Egypt and Afghanistan at the time. Yeah, we also have to remember that um, we're talking about 1920 now, but like in the wake of the First World War, at the end of 1918, coming into 1919, you have to demobilize a huge amount of British servicemen back Correct. into civilian back life. Yeah. You know, and uh, there's been a very, very long conflict, a very costly conflict. And on top of that as well, Britain's role as one of the victors in the First World War and some of their obligations under the Treaty of Versailles they're supposed to be in Europe as well, maintaining things like the Rhineland in the West and Silesia in the East. So there's enormous pressures That's true, on the British no, military. Not only that, but there's things which we never think about now, like British troops are occupying part of Turkey at the time. Another section of British troops is being sent to Russia to try to help the whites in the civil war there. Yeah, and that's one thing we, we largely forget when we think about the Russian civil war is just how many different countries were involved on the anti-Bolshevik side and how many troops and logistics were employed on their behalf. Yeah, and, and we'll come back to uh, the kind of physical crossover between British personnel in, in Ireland and various other places, but some of them had come back from Mesopotamia, some of them had come back from Russia, and mostly they started to come back, the, the regular troops now in kind of 1921, which also explains another thing about Ireland, why the military took a, a greater role in the latter part of the War of Independence versus the earlier part. Part of the reason is because the military was freer to do it now. So as we talked there about the Iraqi uprising, and I think one of the things that's interesting reading back about it is how unified the different groups in Iraq were in opposition to British rule. Like there was a huge crossover between Shias and Sunnis in opposition to the British. But one of the things we always talk about when we talk about the War of Independence is British reprisals. 
and the conduct of the British in the War of Independence. How did that parallel in Iraq? Yeah, well, I suspect the further you go away from Britain itself, and especially remember Ireland is actually part of the United Kingdom, you know, that which makes a big difference. People are English speaking. They're white skinned, which is a very vulgar way to describe people, but it's the way they talked about them at the time, I'm afraid. And that, none of that applies in a place like Iraq. So what you see is basically the, the use of violence is much more brutal and indiscriminate. And it's bad enough in Ireland in 1920 and 21, but it, it's worse in Iraq. And I'm going to quote from Charles Townsend's book on the British occupation of, of Iraq um, when God made hell. And the quote is from a member of the Manchester Regiment who after Iraq were actually sent to Cork. So that's, that's another connection. This is a man called Brooking. And he talks about reprisals for an attack on British troops. Now that's actually... This particular account actually dates from 1916, so before the, the Great Uprising, but it was, there were was sporadic attacks on British troops throughout their occupation. Um, they occupied Iraq from 1915 onwards. And he said, the modus operandi in response to a, an attack on British troops, the modus operandi is as follows. Artillery strafes the nearest village, where most probably the marauders came from. Sometimes they get the wrong village, which matters little. And after an hour or two's bombardment, a strafing party of infantry, the exact number depends on the size of the village, Go and proceed to wipe out all of those who are foolish enough to wait for us. Gurkhas in particular like these jobs and can be relied on to scientifically dispatch all inhabitants, mostly per the kukri methods. The kukri was the Gurkha's knife. Bury them and burn down the village and have everything tidied up before we arrive. So Gertrude Bell, who I mentioned was an Arabist and, uh, and she was the primary political expert, remonstrated with Brookings, this officer, about the strafing policy, and he merely retorted with a half snort and half a twinkle, you've been living with the politicals. So I guess one of the parallels is that the, um, the differences really with, with Ireland is that the military people got to do what they liked in a, in a place like Iraq. Another difference really is the use of air power. So remember, Iraq is, is a vast place. It's much larger than Ireland. And the population of Iraq in those days was only 2.8 million. So it was actually less than Ireland, believe it or not. And the population of Iraq today would be considerably more, probably 10 or 20 times as many as Ireland. Well, 10 anyway. But the use of, of what was called air policing. So similar to what Brookings describes here using artillery, but if there was an attack on British troops, the RAF, the new RAF would be mobilized and they would just bomb the village. And sometimes they would use gas. Churchill has a famous quote about this regarding the Kurds. The Kurdish uprising was actually after the main kind of Arab uprising in later 1920. They generally didn't use mustard gas. It's the only thing they generally use tear gas. So more of a, a terror weapon than a, a mass mortality weapon. But the use of air policing was something that members of the military in Ireland wanted to do. And so Sir John French, who became the Lord Lieutenant in 1918, and was kind of really like a military governor up until 1920 when he was replaced by Hammer Greenwood. Well, not replaced rather, because Greenwood was the chief secretary, but replaced really as the most important official in Ireland. Now, French wanted to do this. He wanted to use aerial bombardment and machine gunning against the anti-conscription campaign in 1918. And General McCready, who was the commander-in-chief of British forces in Ireland from early 1920 onwards, also wanted to use what he called air policing. So very much based on what they were doing in places like the Middle East and also the northwest frontier of India. This wasn't sanctioned by political people in Ireland. Though. So on the basis that aerial bombardment of villages would be too indiscriminate, you'd be bound to kill far more civilians than any fighters or any agitators, which again probably shows that Ireland got off somewhat lightly in, in that regard. Now, it, you know, you can exaggerate that because you're still talking about a situation where the, the police, the so-called police, would arrive into a village, a place like Balbriggan or Chewham or Trim, and burn down the town hall and the creamery and, and shoot a couple of people. 
the violence is still considerably more restrained than in a faraway place like Iraq or India or Afghanistan. Well, in our last episode, we were talking about the events in Crow Park on Bloody Sunday. And one of the things in the aftermath of that is that you have a commission of inquiry coming over from the Labour Party in Britain. There was very little chance of commissions of inquiry or Labour politicians or trade unionists visiting Iraq and going to the different villages that had been strafed and bombarded from the air. Yeah, or journalists, or no? I mean, there was there was one or two journalists out there who did object actually um, and, and did cover it to a degree. So there was some degree of, of outcry in Britain, but it's, it couldn't get the same kind of purchase. You know, the Irish are much more familiar people, much more powerful representatives, to be honest, in Britain and America, as well. Whereas the likes of the Iraqis would have had very few people to speak for them. Even the likes of Gertrude Bell, who, as I said, was was quite sympathetic and was quite against this kind of policy, it was much more difficult to get a hearing. I would say in Britain. Yes, very much so. And as we can see in Ireland, as the War of Independence continues and it goes into 1920, the British are looking to find some political solution and way out and are trying to revive the ideas behind the original Home Rule Bill and come to some sort of settlement and all the different complications that exist between unionists in Ireland as well and their opposition to Home Rule. But could you talk about how the British viewed the mandates in the Middle East and their plans to move forward towards some new type of political settlements in places like Iraq? Yeah, so we've already talked about Egypt, which again was not technically a mandate, it was something else. And the idea very much is you maintain your vital interests, but you let a local government represent the country so that you you don't take the, the, the direct consequences for kind of unrest or discontent with your presence. Iraq is very much the same kind of thing. So the British installed, as I said, King Faisal I in Iraq as kind of a puppet. But Faisal, it seems, was offended at being subordinated to a British high commissioner. So the equivalent of a a Lord Lieutenant or Governor General in in Ireland. And it it turned out that Faisal, even though he was put there by the British and he was kept there throughout the uprising of 1920 by British troops, it turned out to be an awkward customer. Even in the wake of the the uprising, where on to 1922 now, the Shia clerics called for a British withdrawal and the British closed down the opposition. So it's, that's also similar to Egypt in the sense that the British banned the main nationalist party in Egypt too. But Faisal forced the British to sign a treaty in October of 1922, so not too long after the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which was ratified in 1924, and it included a 75-year concession to the British for the Mosul oil fields. So again, the British retained the presence, they retained the High Commissioner, they made sure the treaty was signed so that they would control the oil, but then they stepped back a little bit and it allowed an Iraqi administration to run the kind of day-to-day affairs. Now, I'd be meaning to go into this. So, like, you know, we're discussing this in comparison with Ireland. Now, arguments over the Anglo-Irish Treaty have continued ever since the day it was signed on December the 6th, 1921, and will always continue, probably. And in Ireland, obviously, you've got two very polarised views at the time of whether it's freedom to achieve freedom, in Michael Collins' famous phrase, or if it's, you know, a surrender of the Republic, as, as the anti-treaty has maintained. Now, I don't want to go into that you know, the partisan kind of Irish interpretations of the treaty. But what I do want to say is that from a British point of view, they didn't view the treaty as a kind of surrender, really. What they thought the Anglo-Irish Treaty was, was they were maintaining their vital interests in Ireland. And you see it very much as consistent with British imperial policy elsewhere. So, like, let's look at the, the relevant parts of the treaty. So one is obviously the partition of Ireland. Um, which is to do with kind of the unionists and their outsized influence on, on British politics. The other one is the retention of all the of four naval bases in Southern Ireland or in the Irish Free State. And also the treaty originally has a, a clause saying in time of war, 
the Irish Free State has to give all of its ports and airfields, such as the British require, to Britain, or has to allow them use of it. They had to retain a lot of the civil service to, to a responsible government. And originally, they had to pay off parts of the British war debt and so on. Now, parts of this are eventually kind of reversed. We see this in other countries as well, where as time goes by, British plan gets eroded a little bit. But I think in terms of British intentions and what the British are trying to do, how they understand the situation, you know, there's a lot of consistency between what they're trying to do in the Middle East and what they're trying to do in Ireland in 1921-22. Well, it's interesting because when you look at the end of the First World War and these couple of years afterwards, it looks to an outside observer that the British Empire has never been stronger. It's never covered more territory. But in reality, Britain is in a very difficult position. It's really stretched trying to keep this empire in place and pay for it too, more importantly. Yeah, exactly. And one again parallel you might make is that like we've talked about how the British kind of did a fake withdrawal from a lot of these places in the Middle East in, in the aftermath of the First World War. But what you see in Ireland in terms of, you know, the de Valera government and the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1938, you also see in the Middle East in the sense that British authority does get eroded to a degree. So again, talking about Iraq in 1930, there's a new treaty and the British had to remove many of their troops from Iraq. But again, they, they did still retain a lot of the vital stuff. And again, it was used in World War II. So they, they retained two air bases, the right to transfer troops across Iraq, not to keep them there, but to transfer them across Iraq. And Iraq had to buy military equipment from Britain. Uh, and they had to send officers to British military academies. So the British still are attempting to do the same thing. But their influence, e even by the 30s, you see is starting to wane in, in many of these places. And after the Second World War, with the cost of that, you see British presence being removed altogether. You know, under, as you say, the strain probably of imperial overstretch and fighting these great wars as well. Yeah, because Britain really is fighting on so many fronts in the late 40s and the 50s, trying to keep the empire together through different parts of Asia and Africa and the Middle East. And I think there's a really interesting series. I can't think of the name of it on BBC a couple of years ago where they're talking about places like Malaya and Aden and all these different countries that are having uprisings against British presence, continued British presence in the region. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, Ireland kind of drops out of the story after the late 1930s because it's, it's a very different context. But in terms of the British Empire, yeah, I mean, eventually there's just limits to what you can do, especially after you've, you've put so much kind of blood and treasure into the, both world wars. So, John, you mentioned the Manchester Regiment there a while ago, that they had come to Ireland directly from Mesopotamia. Can you t think of any other British forces that were active in Ireland in this period that had done previous service in the Middle East? Yeah, like I haven't looked into this in detail, but, the, you know, even from a cursory kind of uh, look, you, you can see a, a lot of kind of connections of units being moved. Now, the Manchester Regiment, for example, the 2nd Battalion, British regiments really are better talked of in battalions because they generally had one home service and one foreign service. The Manchester Regiment, 2nd Battalion, served in Mesopotamia, Iraq, until mid-1920. So they dealt with the Iraqi revolt, as I mentioned, of 1920, after which they were sent to Ireland uh, and they ended up in, in County Cork, which was obviously the most violent or disturbed region of guerrilla warfare in the country. Another one is the Essex Regiment. Now, the Essex Regiment were notorious in West Cork, partly made notorious by, by memoirs like Tom Barry's. But, you know, they were brutal in terms of their treatment of captured prisoners and so on. But they had previously been stationed as occupation troops in Istanbul. So we mentioned this in, in terms of the brief British occupation in Turkey there. You can really drill down into this a bit more, but, you know, like 
one of the things about especially the kind of uh, so-called police is they, they have very kind of, how can we put this, exotic experience in the aftermath of the First World War. Like Crozier, for example, who is the commander of the auxiliary division of the RIC, had served as, it seems, a kind of a mercenary in Lithuania or possibly with the, with the sanction of the British Foreign Office. But during the Russian Civil War, uh, he fought with Lithuanian nationalists against the Bolsheviks in Lithuania, in Eastern Europe. Arthur Percival, who was an intelligence officer with the military in Cork, uh, with the Essex Regiment, who had been in Istanbul, had served at Archangel in Russia in the Russian Civil War, again on the side of the whites. The Oxford and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, again, were in, in Archangel or Archangel before me sent to County Limerick. I think in, in the future, the use of British resources and how they were able to use them should be looked at much more in the context of all the British commitments elsewhere at the time. We don't tend to take into account the previous service of these regiments that are serving in Ireland and what has led them to this point or the previous experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we want to kind of round out the picture of what happens in Ireland, we have to look at the British Empire, you know, and what was going on there, especially to, to get a kind of a realistic picture. One point that someone has made to me, uh, Darren Gannon, I think, said this to me, is like, if you look at the British cabinet minutes from the First World War and the post-war period, Ireland is usually well down the list. And this should also inform how we're looking at it, but also in terms of what resources were available and what personnel served in Ireland and also in other places. And I guess a final point about that would be like, you know, we said that the repression in Ireland wasn't as bad as somewhere like Iraq or Northwest Frontier of India and so on. But it's really following the same playbook of kind of collective punishment. So we, we had the quote from Mr. Brooking of the Manchester Regiment before about how if there's shots fired at troops, the entire village gets punished. And if it's the wrong village, so what kind of thing? Mm. And you do see that attitude an awful lot in Ireland from, from the new police and from the, the military to a large degree, especially in the kind of martial law area in the south. Well, when I was reading up about Egypt, one of the things that I found quite interesting, because at the moment we are commemorating a lot of these different reprisals like Balbriggan and Trim and the events in Bloody Sunday as well in Crow Park. And in 1906, there's a thing, and I'm probably mispronouncing it in Egypt, then Shaway, where some British officers had been making a nuisance of themselves in a, an Egyptian village and they started shooting at pigeons. And these were like homing pigeons owned by locals. And they came out to remonstrate and got very angry because I think their livelihoods depended on these pigeons. Mm. And they ended up shooting the wife of one of the clerics in the village. And uh, the villagers went mad and chased them. And one of the British officers had to run back to get help. And because it was a hot day, he collapsed and died uh, of heat stroke, arriving back at the, the headquarters. And some of the villagers were hanged. They were flogged. And uh, one of the local Egyptian policemen that had given a truthful version of the story, he was imprisoned and lost his job. And uh, but how much this sticks in the popular consciousness I think one of the headlines they were saying in Egypt after the Suez crisis when Britain and France oh, finally left in 1956 was like the pigeons have come home to roost whereas we're still talking about these reprisals a hundred years later and will be far into the future but places like Iraq and Egypt and India they have their own reprisal stories that we may not be aware of but are very deep in the popular consciousness oh absolutely especially things like the amritsar massacre which you know was actually ordered by an irish officer unfortunately 
So there's one more area that we haven't really spoke about at all, but it's another mandate run by the British, and that's Palestine. Absolutely. So Palestine is obviously controversial to this day, what, what the British did there, but it's the same idea as Iraq. It's a mandate rather than a colony. The British take it over from the Ottomans. I think Palestine, as far as I know, had been part of the same Ottoman province as Lebanon, modern Lebanon, and parts of Syria. But at the time, there was a very small Jewish population there. And some of the Zionist movement had just started to arrive. But in 1916, the British made famously by the, the Balfour Declaration, Arthur Balfour, who had previously once upon a time been Chief Secretary of Ireland, by the way, that Palestine was to be a homeland for the Jewish people without prejudice to the rights of the indigenous people there, the Arab population, which of course was to a very contradictory statement. In the wake of the First World War, Allenby, the British general, famously uh, walked into Jerusalem as if on pilgrimage when he took it in 1917. So they were well aware of the kind of symbolic significance of places like Jerusalem. But in the wake of the First World War, um, as a result of the Balfour Declaration, far more Zionists, Jewish settlers started to arrive, especially near Haifa and what today is Tel Aviv, and they started to set up their own settlements there. And one of the interesting connections there is that in 1922, when the RAC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, including the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, was disbanded, and Sean Gannon has a very good article about this on the Irish story, a lot of them, I think seven to 800 of them, were recruited directly into the the gendarmerie of the new British Palestine police. So they're basically the, the strike force of the new British police force in Palestine. And they were commanded by Henry Hugh Tudor, who had been the chief of police in Ireland from 1921 to 22. So there's, there's a direct, again, physical connection there, but this time it's going the other way, going from Ireland. People who were recruited to do counterinsurgency in Ireland were sent over then to Palestine to do it over there. Initially, most of the trouble that they had was with um, the Arab population rather than the Jewish population, because in effect, the British were the protectors of the Jewish settlements there. Now, you know, if we fast forward a couple of decades, you see a different kind of dynamic because the Zionists or what would become the Israelis come to view the British as occupiers and they come to fight them or some of them do. But in the 1920s, it's not re- that's not really the case. The British are protecting the Jewish settlements that are there. And while some British officers certainly would have harbored anti-Jewish prejudice and been Arabists and so on, the fact of the matter is that they, most of the repression was directed against the Arabs. Again, Sean Gannon talks about this in his article, the Arab revolt in the 1930s, the repression is often compared to when it in Ireland. Some of the personnel are the same, some of them have moved on by now, but in, you know, it's referred to as black and tannery in Palestine. But again, it's mostly, mostly directed against the Arab population rather than the Jewish population. It's a very good article and it's, you can see how much the reputation of the black and tans follows them into Palestine. Yeah, it's incredible Like that the political authorities in Palestine were actually um, appalled by the recruitment of, of the Black and Tans to Palestine because they thought this would besmirch the name of our mandate before we even get started, which shows the, the terrible publicity that the Black and Tans created, really. Yes, and not just the, the body of men, the Black and Tans, but Tudor as well. He really is identified with the Black and Tans for the rest of his life. That's right, yeah. And, and even there's rumours that when he retired to Canada that supposedly people went over from Ireland to try to kill him, which is probably not true, but it's interesting that people would believe that story, though. But um, in terms of Palestine, though, it's a little bit different because of this thing of two communities, and some people have compared it to Northern Ireland, to Ulster, in, in that respect. But it's it's really not that similar in truth, I, w- I would say, no? Yes, I think that's quite dubious, that parallel. Yeah, I mean, you know, like people are always looking for parallels and uh, to help them understand. But like 
One parallel, I suppose, is that the British managed to get out of Ireland by way of partition. And eventually in the 1940s, they envisaged that they were going to get out of Palestine by way of partition as well, which didn't work out at all as the British thought it was going to, though. Well, partitions don't tend to work out as people envisage them, if we think of India as well. Right. Yeah. And another another great example of British disengagement. But I mean, I suppose we should finish up, though, if we're going to talk about Palestine, to talk briefly about what happened in the 1940s there. So the British mandate in Palestine ended in a very awkward manner in the end, in the sense that they faced kind of insurgency from two sides. So in the late 30s and 40s, they tried to stop Jewish immigration, which provoked an armed response from some of the Zionist movement, the so-called revisionist Zionists, the Irgun and so on. Um, who started in the wake of the Second World War attacks on British on British troops. So the British ended up fighting them. And finally, this led to the British pulling out before they had even secured this partition of Palestine, which they envisaged, and letting the two sides fight it out in 1948, fight it out among themselves, which I guess they've been doing ever since. Um, but Palestine, I suppose, is a bit different from a place like, say, Iraq or Persia or even Egypt, in the sense that there was vital natural resources or the, the Suez Canal, in, in the case of Egypt, that the British really wanted. There probably wasn't all that much that they really wanted in Palestine, I would say. Yes, very true. And I think one of the things we can see as well as the British Empire recedes almost completely in the 50s and into the 60s is that it doesn't collapse entirely. The soft power aspect of it, the economic interests, you have big companies like British Petroleum still having a major role in places like Iran and and other Middle Eastern countries. And the military aspect of things is almost privatized in some of these Middle Eastern kingdoms. Yeah, Uh, you know, yeah. You know, we need a whole other uh, other um, episode to talk about this, but like the yeah, the afterlife of the British Empire goes on for quite a long time. Now today, it's almost almost gone; it's almost disappeared. But like they don't withdraw from the last bit of their Middle Eastern territories until the nineteen sixties, places like Aden and, and Oman and places like that. And as you said, the armed forces in most of these places was dominated by British trained and in some cases British mm. actual British officers up until well into the nineteen seventies. In most cases, except in places like Iraq, where there's the Abathist military coup in, in the 1950s. But a place like Jordan, for example, would have been a British satellite really probably until the 1980s or, or later. Well, you still have a lot of these Middle Eastern royals sending their kids to Sandhurst to be educated in the, the British traditions of the military. Yeah, I mean, although I suspect that American influence is, is much more important than recent decades. Yes, I, I can't think of the name. The, Adam Curtis did a very interesting documentary about that for the BBC, yeah. about the role of the British, particularly in, in the whole area of mercenaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose, like the 1921 treaty, the Anglo-Irish Treaty in Ireland, a lot of these treaties and compacts that were signed with Middle Eastern countries and mandates by Britain, it was never the final say in the relationship between Britain and these countries, that it really was a stepping stone in a lot of ways. That's true. And I mean, that's I think we've alluded to that a number of times now in our podcast. So in the case of Egypt and in the case of Iraq and also in the case of Palestine, the British presence was in the end kind of relatively fleeting. And even the British attempts to hang on to their vital interests were short term rather than long term. They were decades rather than, than centuries. Well, a lot of Britain's relationships in the Middle East 
are largely forgotten, I think, in Britain itself and in the popular culture and the media. They're definitely not forgotten in the Middle East. No, absolutely not. And I mean, even in Afghanistan, which we didn't talk about today, but um, which was British troops were again in Afghanistan in 1919. You know, when British troops were redeployed there in the more in the 2000s into Iraq and Afghanistan, they found the graves and the graveyards that were left by British troops of an earlier era. And in Afghanistan in particular, it was reported that the Afghans said, well, clearly you've come back to, to regain your honor that you lost it. Yeah. in 18 whatever it was you know yeah. so yeah, I, I think it, just as in ireland the british presence is much better remembered than it would be in britain itself you see as well with like a lot of conservative education secretaries in the last couple of years trying to maybe reframe the whole thinking on the british empire and trying to see if schools would teach it in a more positive way there's still an awful lot there that's not positive and not talked about at all yeah, and I mean, the only thing I would say, though, is nowadays there tends to be this thing in history of, like, we have to judge something as good or bad. It's very moralistic. And I mean, what I'd like to see personally is just a much more realistic view of what the British Empire was and what was it about. So especially in a place like the Middle East, in a lot of ways, it was empire without the frills. You know, so it wasn't so much pomp and ceremony. It was about these are our interests. We'll enforce our interests by whatever means we deem necessary, be they military, be they, you know, appointing local governments and kind of telling them what the political system is going to be. And I think that this is the reality of, of world power. And I think the British would be well served by looking at this in a very realistic way, rather than this was good or this was bad. I don't think you're going to get it to understand it very well if you do that. Yes, I think that's absolutely true, because just even talking about it and acknowledging it, rather than getting into the rights and wrongs of it or judging it by the standards of 2020, but in the run-up to the Iraq war, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Britain had no relationship with Iraq previous to that date at all because it wasn't mentioned in, yeah, the, I, in the run-up. Yeah, not enough anyway. I mean, and the, and the fact is that Britain created Iraq, for better or for worse. Yes. There was no Iraq before before the British presence there. And one, one more point I'd like to make, I mean, just without getting too political, is that, you know, the, the idea, this idea of kind of global Britain and, and the aftermath of leaving the European Union this idea that Britain was a great trading country before the European Union is, I'm afraid, total nonsense. Because it was a, what Britain was was an empire mm. whose economic and strategic interests were, you know, were secured by force, and, and that doesn't exist in the world of 2020. And I think people should should appreciate that. And on that note, I think we'll leave it for another week, John. So if you like that episode, you can listen back to any of our previous episodes on irishhistoryshow.ie has all the back archive if you find us on itunes or spotify or anything like that don't forget to hit subscribe and please rate and review the show because it really helps and we love reading reviews it's great to get feedback from the listeners so you can follow us on twitter at irish history pod or on facebook facebook.com the irish history show so on behalf of myself cahill brennan and my co-presenter john dorney until next time thanks very much for listening Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. 
Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.